Welcome to Cinema Journal Presents ACA Media. I'm Christine Becker. And I am Michael Kackman. It is almost Merry Christmas time, it Michael. It is. It is. And um, this is your last uh, uh, missive from the UK. It is. And in fact, there's a good chance when people actually hear this, besides our producer, Todd Thompson, when people other than Todd hear this, I will probably be back in the US. I've only got one more week left here. So it's almost Man. over. I'm sorry. That's fine. It's all great things come to an end. It has really been wonderful. There's this kind of really gut punch to the fact that I have to leave now because I've gotten so excited, not just about Christmas, uh, but Christmas television, which is famous in the UK, at least within the UK, for wondrous uh, pleasures, and especially in the notion of Christmas specials. And if you're not familiar with this scenario, of course, US television scripted shows because they follow a season, you know, the whatever eighth episode in is like the Christmas episode. Mm -hmm. But UK television does not follow September to May. So, you know, if they didn't have these Christmas specials, there might not be the chance to see your beloved casts celebrating Christmas. So they have Christmas specials of series that haven't, you know, aired maybe in April or haven't been on in years. And then there's kind of special one-off documentaries and things to encourage families to gather around the television set for Christmas. Oh, that sounds so really good. Those, it's wonderful. Those are going to be ramping up just as I'm leaving. Mm, that, that's way better than, like, just yesterday was my last day teaching for the semester in my mm -hmm. um, TV history class. And I ended it with the um, truly execrable, uh, bewitched Christmas special um, in which the... Uh, it prominently features blackface and spotted daughters and it's, oh, no. but it's full of good cheer and it's just, it's horrifying and <laughs> embarrassing and, um, yeah. but this sounds well, way better. I'm sure British television has its own legacy of horrifying and embarrassing Christmas TV, but let me just give you one tease. And there's, there's things like, again, all the, the, the beloved shows. So call the midwife has a Christmas special and Mrs. Brown's boys. And, um, there's a, triumphant return of the cult hit League of Gentlemen coming. But here is the show I am most excited for. And I'll just deliver the title and let people think about it a minute. It is called Judy Dench, My Passion for Trees. And what this is, and again, if you're not familiar with British TV... Can I TV, get the soundtrack? Well, we'll see. And it might involve... There's literally a still. We'll post this on our website of her listening to a tree. She has kind of like an ear horn and it's up against a tree, oh, and she's nice. listening to a tree. Um, because, so the deal is she's apparently trees, she loves trees, she's always loved trees. And it, again, if you're not that familiar with British television, it's very common to take a celebrity, a star, someone who's who we would know, and then basically just put them somewhere or have them travel somewhere, and you make a show out of that. So, you know, star plus this equals show. And so Judy Dench plus trees. And she's going to be talking about the, let's see, a magical journey to uncover the mysteries of trees. And so oh, I am so excited. So you are going to have a chance to see that. Well, maybe, uh, you know, there's, there's ways. There's, yeah. Yeah. There, there are mechanisms. Well, and frankly, if BBC America doesn't pick that up, then they should shut They're down dumb as BBC rocks. America because right. it shouldn't, there shouldn't be a channel if they're not going to pick that up. Right. So. Right. But yeah, well, we'll see. Then I, I'm looking forward to hearing the report, um, and I'm hoping that you, you'll have some material to share. Um, yes. But I am sorry that that it's going to be cut short for you. It is. Well, it's uh, you know it's been a fantastic time though. I've had a great time. Um, it's been wonderful teaching over here, and also, and I guess I should revisit what we talked about when we first. I wasn't going to say. Skyped. Okay, yeah. Well, I, I thought our listeners might want to know. I brought up, you know, the book proposal. And I, I, I have to confess, I don't have a book proposal. I have an abstract. I've written an abstract. Uh, but as far as like a proposal... It's which like a proposal a for a proposal. Chapter, it's, it's sort of like the teaser trailer yeah. for the proposal. So I have that. And okay. doggone it, I'm going to be happy with that. I'm not going to beat myself up about it. So mm. okay. I've written something. Good for you. Yeah. So I got that going for me, which is nice. Everybody's got to have something. That's good. <laughs> yep. 
So we're But it's something to build on. Oh, you have sirens in the background. Oh, sorry, that's London. Welcome. This will be the last time hopefully you hear sirens in the background of me Skyping. Except when they come to take me away for the But they're not doing the neener, neener, neener. Oh. So I don't I don't American know if it's zone. really Yeah, exactly. Oh, do I have am I really in London? Are you actually in South Bend in your basement? <laughs> it could be. And I'm totally making up that whole Judy Dench tree. This thing. whole tree thing should have been the giveaway. Yeah. <laughs> We've got some interesting stuff coming up this 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 week, this month, this quarter. <laughs> Whatever. Right? I don't even know what time it yeah. is. Yeah. Well, we have a very special interview. I did basically an exit interview with Will Brooker, outgoing editor of Cinema Journal. And I myself am outgoing online editor of Cinema Journal. So we shared a few moments in a conversation about what we hope we've accomplished the last five years and Will reflecting on what we think perhaps the legacy might be of the last five years of Cinema Journal. Nice. Did you did you uh, wear like a an ill-fitting polyester suit and conduct the interview in an HR sort of office with, you know, kind of a twitching fluorescent light and... <laughs> Make sure he there had a was, box to clean out his desk and that kind of stuff. There was some of that. There were twitching lights. We were actually in the BFI, oh, in the yeah. BFI bar. So there was there were some lights, and I think he was wearing a suit. We actually have photographs. That becomes a bit. Okay. So you can look forward to, you can hear that and look forward to some more extra content on the Acamedia website. All right. So first up, your conversation with Will. I am sitting here in the British Film Institute, the BFI South Bank in London, with Will Brooker, former Cinema Journal editor. As of today, you are the former Cinema Journal editor, Will. Yeah. How um, does that feel? Well, in some in some ways, it feels like a, a weight off your shoulders. It feels kind of strange. Mm -hmm. um, it feels like it feels like retiring from a career in a way. Yeah. It, you know, five years is a long time. We we spoke five years ago. That's you know, half a decade is a <laughs> it's a pretty long time. It does feel like leaving. Leaving a job. Yeah, we did. So, and five years ago, uh, we were in a pub. So, uh, somewhat similar place. We're actually right by the BFI bar. If you hear some oh. noise, that's that's the BFI bar. And then um, we're near the lobby, and so they're making announcements about screenings. So, occasionally, mm -hmm. a man will announce screenings. So yes. that's that's what that's about. But yeah, five years ago, we had our first meeting in a pub uh, in London to talk about what we wanted from the future of Cinema Journal. And um, so we want to, in this interview, look back on that, kind of where we started five years ago. And we're going to treat you all to uh, some clips from our very first interview, because you were our uh, first interview subject of Acamedia, the very first episode. Yeah, I think so. that was probably my suggestion that yeah. you interview me first. That was very smart. So and it's probably hear... my suggestion that you interview me now as well. <laughs> yeah. you know, so. Well, and uh, so we'll get, you also get to hear how uh, we both aged in five years, vocal yeah. aging. Yeah, I wonder if we have... <laughs> When I listened to that interview recently, I sounded, I sounded so on point, I sounded so keen and enthusiastic, and I wonder if my voice has actually changed. Right. You know, I really feel, um, I don't want to uh, big myself up, but I, I'm reminded, having listened to that interview and thinking about how I feel now, reminded of how um, prime ministers and presidents mm. look so much older. You know, I mean, I'm no Barack Obama, but if you look at him when he started, and when he, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's accelerated time. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I haven't actually gone grey, but... Uh, <laughs> You can, I, I, can, I can imagine how they feel coming out of office. Well, we'll take a picture of you tonight, okay. and we'll post that to our people website. People can so, vote. Yeah, people yeah, can see. You. And yeah, we, and we'll, we'll put a before and after, and people can vote. Which Will Brooker do you like better, I, I, don't, I don't know if I love that idea, but yeah, okay. <laughs> well, we'll see. We'll talk yeah. about that. All right, well, let's go ahead and start with the first clip. So this is, this is actually the end of our very first interview, so we're going to have some interesting continuity here from, from, end, to, from end to beginning, beginning to end. So oh. this is the final segment of our first interview. So any final thoughts about that? Things you would want to kind of tell people that they can look forward to in the Will Brooker era of Cinema Journal? Well, firstly, I wouldn't like to call it the Will Brooker era. It's, it's, the, Chris, <laughs> it's the Chris Becker era as much as anything else. It belongs, right. to, the, it belongs to the masthead team, including our brilliant um, assistant editors who have really come through when we were putting together the first issue. Yeah, when, would you like to name them? Yes, uh, Christine Atchison and, and Philip Bevin have, uh, have proved real, real troopers working over the holiday season, uh, trying to reformat articles to uh, according to the Chicago Manual of Style. It's been a huge pleasure. I mean, working over Christmas with, with um, Anna Frohler, my associate editor and the assistant editors has been... Um, it's been a lot of work, but I've just been blown away by, by their commitment and their skill. So firstly, I mean, all right, my name is, I get my name as the editor, but it's a, it's a team thing. It's very much a team thing. There is absolutely no way one person could put together this journal. I've realised that. There is no way. I guess the, the, the main message I would like to put across to people around my era of Cinema Journal, we'll see if it comes true, 
is that there's going to be more ways of engaging with it, more ways of taking part in it, more ways of getting involved, more ways of talking to it, because the journal will still be what it's always been at the centre, but there'll just be a more exciting and dynamic surround of other texts around it. So listening back to your words from five years ago, um, what are your initial thoughts? I've got to say, I think that what I said really was true. I think it did come true. Um, and the funny thing about it is that it, it was new at the time. It, perhaps it seemed radical at the time. It, it seemed like a fresh move. But now I've got used to it, and I think perhaps other people have got used to it as well. So what was new now seems familiar. So mm. I think it's true there's more, more dialogue. There are more ways to communicate with Cinema Journal. It does have much more of an accessible presence. There are much more ways to engage. But that almost feels like the status quo. It doesn't, it doesn't feel at all like we're doing something which is an innovation anymore. Mm -hmm. So perhaps we've all got used to it. Do we need a before and after picture of Cinema Journal then to post like what it was like before and, and what it is now? Yeah, I was thinking that because you're saying, like, how is it, how is it going to be different? Um, well, we'd have to compare to what it was before, wouldn't we? Um, mm. Ten years ago or seven years ago, mm -hmm. really, rather than, say, three years ago. It's been the same for, for a while now. Yeah, yeah, so to see if what I... To see if it was different, we'd have to look at what was before. Yeah. Well, speaking of what was before, another thing you talked about early on in our first interview was about trying to address the gender imbalance on the editorial board, first of all, and then secondly, giving the SEMS caucuses a, a greater platform through Cinema Journal in order to kind of boost marginalized voices. And so I think that has, has played out successfully. But you tell me, do you think that, what, did you set out to accomplish there what you had hoped? That also came true. I mean, I was just, I was reading the latest Cinema Journal on the train to meet you, and um, I counted the women on the editorial board, and it was 18 out of 29. Hmm. So, you know, it's more than 50%, which I think is more than you can say for a lot of, lot of organizations. So yeah, I mean, you know, that's, that's also true. Uh, we, we moved it, I don't know, it was about 30% female, and then we got up to 50, and now it's, now it's more than 50. So, you know, again, that's something we, we definitely achieved. In terms of talking to the caucuses, I definitely did that from my first year as when I was transitioning into the role at the conference. I went to see a lot of the caucuses. Um, I think it was the first time they'd had an editor of Cinema Journal come to, come to talk to them. And we featured all the caucuses, all the caucuses apart from one which had just had in focus. We, we invited them all to have an in focus section. And so that was a lot of in focuses. That was a big chunk. Mm. That took up a lot of our 20 in, in foci. Mm. Uh, yeah, they all took up that opportunity, so, you know, that, that happened. Well, speaking of things that happened, I also want to return to another clip from the interview because there's a section where um, you list off some specific plans you had in regard to creating what you um, took to calling the dialogue sphere surrounding Cinema Journal. So let's listen to that clip, remind our listeners of that. You mentioned Twitter. That's one of the great joys of Twitter for me is that I can have conversations with other scholars and everyone from, you know, senior tenured professors to, to beginning graduate students and, and then journalists and TV fans and just there's a huge range of people and it's really gratifying to be able to talk to people about your work and then hear from them, their thoughts on it. It's, you know, that again, that notion of dialogue. Twitter is, is really fun for that, I think. That's partly what we want to do with Cinema Journal more in this, I mean, well, Twitter sphere is also a word, isn't it? We'll have to make a word for it, you know, the CJ sphere <laughs> or something. So again, you've got the journal, but all around it is these different ways of, of talking to the journal. Um, so the in-focus sections, which have been running for a long time now, are one of my favourite parts of the journal, are going to be supplemented by um, an in-media res forum where the people who contributed to the in-focus then curate a clip and encourage dialogue about it. And we've got various ways that we're thinking of um, using our online partners. Uh, conference reports are going to be published online on antenna and scope, depending on whether they're US or UK conferences. So in a way, one thing is it's going to be a lot easier to publish something under the Cinema Journal brand because it's a lot easier to publish something on antenna and scope a, a conference report than it is to submit something or wait two and a half years to get it published in the in the text journal, we're hoping to do interviews with the authors of the articles on transformative works and cultures. And we're also very excited about the idea of having peer-reviewed by the Cinema Journal Editorial Board um, visual essays, video essays, which we're currently talking to transformative works and cultures about. So there's various ways we're trying to innovate um, the dialogue around the journal. 
Okay, so not everything you mentioned uh, there did happen, but much of it did, and much of it, at least you know, in spirit, ended up happening. Um, but I, I just one quick, I have to laugh hearing myself on that, uh, where I'm kind of idealizing Twitter as this wonderful communication outlet. Um, five years later, it's mm. basically now this Trump-filled misery mm. porn. Um, it's still vile lifeline for me, especially in uh, terms of, of Trump, and especially being here in London, kind of feeling this connection back to home. But um, I'm curious for you then how you think this online dialogue sphere has changed, maybe both for you personally over the last five years, and then in regard to Cinema Journal. Personally, I don't use Twitter anymore. Um, I was using it minimally earlier in the year just to promote um, events for uh, my graphic novel, my so-called secret identity, and that was because it was funding rape crisis. So I mean, there was kind of there was a greater good involved there. I tailed off my use of it dramatically. I, I really stopped using it. I was I was tweeting all the time when we spoke five years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, no, it went into a severe slide. I don't know if Twitter. I don't know if Twitter has changed or if I've changed. I think we've all changed. Everything yeah, has changed. we've all changed. No doubt. No doubt. It's both. I think I reached a kind of real saturation point. I think it can be very very toxic. I think it can be can really drag you in. It can drag you down as well. I mean, you're saying it becomes kind of Trump misery porn, but. I suppose the counter to that could be that depends who you follow, right? It depends right. What, you look, what you look at. But I guess it's also hard to, it becomes perhaps harder to avoid the things you don't want to read. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's, it's this, it's pleasure pain thing because I know I shouldn't read it because it makes me miserable. Mm. And yet, especially the way of kind of, you know, our mechanisms for dealing with this are either wallowing mm. in it or making mm. fun of it. And I can't pull myself away from that, even though I know it's unhealthy. Um, and so, yeah, it's it's this. And it, perhaps that's a definition of addiction as well. Um, but that is kind of a communicative form, and especially what we were talking about five years ago, about what how we would insert Cinema Journal into this, being where it wasn't Cinema Journal, then the print issue wasn't just this thing that was out there somewhere. It was kind of connected. You used the word, I think, matrices, like of this matrices of connections. Yeah, it was so grand. Dialogue sphere and matrices and networks and all this. Well, again, you know, I think my line throughout this interview is going to be, yeah, we did it. Um, we did it, and now it doesn't feel like so much. Mm. Just like maybe Twitter doesn't feel the same way now. We did do that. Yeah. And it became kind of, yeah, and, you know, I almost feel a bit shocking about it now. And, I, again, I think we would have to look at, we'd have to look back to Cinema Journal's absence of engagement with social media before that to see mm-hmm. how different it was. I mean, yeah. I can't kind of remember, can't even remember those days. Yeah. But uh, I don't even know if um, Cinema Journal had a, a significant Facebook presence. No, I don't think so. I, what had maybe through UT Press there was something, but you know I created right. the, the the Facebook page. Right. Um, you know, and there's that that issue of kind of what you know, and similar with Twitter. Like I don't remember my life before Twitter. Mm-hmm. How did I talk to mm-hmm. other people before Twitter? Well, I'm all, I'm serious. I'm off it. You should you should go cold turkey on that. You know. Yeah. Okay. It, well, right. it depends what you want. You, do, you should do what you want. But I mean, I. I've found other things to fill my time. Yeah. And I feel less stressed now. I'm not always looking at Twitter when I'm walking down the street thinking, yeah. man, I've got to reply. I've got to come up with a smart yeah. reply for that. Well, and now you won't have Cinema Journal stuff yeah. to, to occupy your time anymore. Yeah. So, um, well, first of all, and maybe this is going to be kind of the same thing we've already been talking about, but I'm curious about what you think about what will be the legacy of the Brooker era, Chris Becker, Anna Frola era. Like, what, mm. what are, you think, the key things that will go forward? In practical terms, a lot of things are staying. Right, the podcast is staying. Mm-hmm. The online engagement is staying. If anything, I think Cinema Journal is going, um, you know, more digital. I see today the uh, new team has announced a new, um, a new way of submitting. Mm-hmm. What's it called? Submissible. Submittable. Submittable. I don't know. S and M. Yeah, this is very newfangled for me. Anyway, you know, they're taking it in new directions, but which are more obviously more digital. Mm-hmm. They're not more. They're not going more analog. Right. So the new team isn't taking it back to kind of, you know, pen and paper of mm-hmm. the old cinema journal days when I think things were probably sent out by post. Um, so if anything, I get the impression that uh, Caitlin's team is going to build on the platform that we established and make it kind of slicker, mm-hmm. um, make it more streamlined in that respect. It doesn't look from their activity today that they're using Twitter less, does right. it? You know, you, you've seen it. There's, yeah. a, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of cinema journal tweeting going on. So... I get the impression that a lot of things we started are going to, you know, remain and, and and increase. I think it would be unusual for a new editor to kind of go back and say we've got to scale down the online engagement. Mm-hmm. And there's things like um, In Transition, the journal, which, you know, we're proud to, I wouldn't say we, what, what was our role in it? You know, and this, our, our discussions with the team helped to help to launch that. Yeah. It's, it's one of our partners. You know, I think that's, that's going to continue. That's something which will be lasting. How we're going to be remembered is a different question, isn't it? Because you're saying, what will remain? What will go forward? Mm-hmm. And another question is how people are going to look back at us. 
it's, it's hard to say again how people are going to look back at us because that's a question for other people and also it's a question for other people I think in, in the future um, now I'm looking back in this 24 hours since I haven't been I am officially editor until the 31st of December actually but what oh, it is okay. oh yeah we should explain to listeners um, just like I took over at the start of November five years ago so we suggested the new team should have two months to prepare their first issue because you need that you can't take mm -hmm. over on 31st December so it is five years mm -hmm. um, officially the tenure ends end of December okay. so in practical terms I'm no longer editing it anyway looking back I kind of thought um, I was talking to Anna you know we were reminiscing feeling a little bit a lot relieved and a little bit melancholy I think and we were saying um, it, it felt like a bit of a more of a hip boutique journal mm. than we had planned or that we had felt at the time and I was thinking I mentioned the graphic novel I put together during those five years it felt a bit like that in a way because it had a lot of um, commissioned art a lot of the artwork was from comic book artists mm. there was a straight even though it was a professional outfit and Louisa Stein said to me as well she said it kept, always kept very human mm. it felt very human it felt very warm there was a real sense of kind of community and bonding almost family about it so there was a really sense of kind of you know let's put on a show about it funnily enough um but we were putting out something which I think looked, looked slick and, you know, and proper. But there was also a sense of, you know, I like this, let's, let's put this in there. Mm. You know, I mean, you know, the Clueless was in there because, right. because you know, I like Clueless. And Watchmen was in there because I like Watchmen. And that's partly because, overwhelmingly, the editorial team can't choose any of the content. Mm -hmm. The content is chosen from the, it's the, the five most recent of the best essays which have come through the review process. So that's... Um, 50,000 words mm. of each issue that we don't choose at all. So the other bits, like In Focus, and the book reviews associated with In Focus and the cover are the bits we can choose. And I think, you know, we had some fun with that, doing things that, that we enjoyed. Yeah. And there are some ways in which I tried to keep pushing it towards the end. Like in the last, my last issue, two issues from now, there's um, what we're calling a graphic editorial, you know, a two-page comic strip instead of an editorial. Mm. Cool. Yeah, you know, that's a new thing. Yeah. I wanted to do that. I just wanted to do it just to, you know, test the boundaries and experiment a little bit and keep on exploring mm -hmm. and not let things get boring towards the end. Mm. Well, and as the, you know, I run or used to run, I don't know, again, it's this liminal stage, but uh, the, you know, Twitter and Facebook, and I always loved to find out what the new cover was going to be because mm -hmm. that would get to be the avatar. And I loved that. That was so exciting because mm -hmm. especially it was, as you say, you would... Um, commission artists to do yeah. special covers and I thought that was always a really exciting and a really kind of it made it feel vital and lively one thing you said in the interview and that was the reason why we came up with the idea of the afterthoughts and postscripts which incidentally I think is one of the yeah. the best ideas we had um, was the publishing process is so slow it can feel like the you know so that cinema journal isn't involved in you know, conversations that are happening right yeah. now. And there was something about the artwork on covers that made each of those issues feel like mm. this is kind of the here and now and, and, and really vital, and I loved that. I thought that was always exciting. Yeah, and the, the Twitter and the Facebook, obviously, visually, it looked the same as the journal because the journal would come out and the Twitter has the same cover. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the Twitter is the cinema journal that you can talk to. Hmm. So in a way, again, I didn't think this at the time, but looking back from this position of one day later, it felt a bit like a, a fanzine in a way, in a nice way. You know, looking at the latest cover, it's got a, a, a lovely painting of Pretty in Pink on the front. Mm -hmm. You know, that feels like a kind of alternative magazine from the 80s to me, <laughs> in a nice way. So I think we wanted to put our own creative stamp on it. Mm -hmm. And I think we did in the ways that we were able to. Because mm -hmm. I'd like to reiterate for listeners, most of the journal is not stuff we, we choose at all. The referees choose it. Mm -hmm. And before that, the membership chooses it because they're the ones who send the content in. Mm -hmm. Well, you mentioned Caitlin, and that's Caitlin benson Allen, who would be the new editor of Cinema Journal. So if, you, if she was sitting here and you could pass on some advice to Caitlin, what would you tell her? Red flags, encouragement, what things would you pass on to her as she takes the baton from you? I am going to be seeing Caitlin in London quite soon, I think. Oh. Um, so I'll say this to her. Well, the most important thing for me was really the team, including you. You know, and, and people like, like Anna, obviously, and the, the assistant editors, I'll, I'll name them, I think, uh, if I can remember them. There were a lot over the years. Uh, Philip Bevin, Christine Atchison, Ellen Kirkpatrick, Leah Lee, Katerina Renew, Matt Hills on the, the Proofs Editor, Louisa Stein, mm -hmm. Book Reviews. It was, it was, you know, it wouldn't have worked without the team. Mm -hmm. It was, it was an absolutely brilliant team, and I, I said it felt like a, a family. It, it really, it really was that way. We never 
fell out with each other. Yeah, there's a real sense of bonding about it, especially under pressure. So you're only as good as your team. Well, I mean, this advice, this is, this is advice I gave to her a while ago, you know, pick your team very carefully mm. because your associate editor is, is your lieutenant. You know, that's, that's your, your second in command. Mm. And that to me is Anna. Um, that's so important, you can't do it on your own. So I hope she's got a really good team in place. Uh, it goes in cycles of more relaxed periods, slightly more relaxed periods, and then more intensity. After you've put each, after you've submitted each issue, there's a little bit of a break where all you're doing is going through submitted articles and finding referees. And then after about a month, after about four weeks, you have to start editing it again. So start editing the new one well in advance. Don't get in a rush towards the end. Uh, and I guess enjoy the, the slight gap in between. But you know, get a sense of the rhythm of it as well. Mm -hmm. And also get a sense of the rhythm of it in terms of how it works with the team, of who does what. Because with a good team and with a sense of rhythm and schedule and timing, it should go very smoothly because everyone knows what they've got to do at each particular point. Mm -hmm. That's right. it. Well, and you're describing the workload there, and I want to play one last clip from our first interview um, where I remarked upon your voluminous CV and all the things you've published and asked you how you get it all done. So here's that clip. One last question that um, I'd like to ask you, because you are a very prolific scholar yourself, uh, and you're kind of an inspiration as an academic as far as publishing, you teach a course at Kingston, now you're taking on this journal editorship. So how do you think you're able to balance all these demands? How do you get all that done? I think it's a, well, one of the, one of the reasons is that I actually, I'm writing about things that I actually enjoy and am interested in. And I think um, it's useful if you actually feel passionate about the things you're writing about academically, then it doesn't feel so much like work. A lot of the stuff I do, you know, I, there's, of course, we have this other category, you know, the ACA fan. I'm not sure how I feel about identifying as an ACA fan, but a lot of the things I do are kind of, uh, are kind of based on a fandom or they're related to a fandom. They're related to an enthusiasm that I have for the thing I'm writing about. So I'm curious about then, has what you described there about your publishing work been the case for your cinnamon journal work too? Like, were you an ACA fan of it? Did that help drive you? And then was it joyful to work on or was it more work than love? And, and you know, feel free to answer diplomatically about that question. But I'm curious about what exactly the job of being cinema journal editor has been like and will you miss it or are you ready to move on? I've got to be honest, I'm going to say it was more work. Mm. I, I... I'm, and Anna said the same to me, it's labor. Mm -hmm. It felt like labor. Mm -hmm. I, you know, it feels like voluntary service. And I mean, there were, there were real moments of pleasure. One of the great moments of pleasure is four times a year when you get a new issue. Yeah. In fact, I get like six new issues. <laughs> when you see the issue with the cover, that's great. Um, and you know, we had a lot of, we don't, we don't see each other very often, we see each other at conference, but you know, we have, we have fun on, on emails, you know, we had a good chat, chat on emails. And the sense of warmth um, and connection between the team has been very good. Uh, and the freedom to do what you want creatively as well is pleasurable, you know, and it's a, it's a great responsibility. It's a great opportunity. And, you know, and you're running something which is very important and you can put your own stamp on it, you know, visually and in other ways, to an extent, as I say, the bits around the articles we, we were able to choose. But there's a lot of work, you know, it's, I counted this, I didn't count them all individually, but it's a million words of articles alone mm. because it's 20, 10,000 word articles. Mm -hmm. I think that's a million. Um, please write in. Um, that's, that's a lot. And then you've got the in-focus and the book reviews and everything else. It, it really is like putting out at least one editing book, edited book per year. Mm. But without the credit you would get from your managers for putting out an edited book, mm -hmm. it doesn't really count for anything. So in that sense, in terms of you know, recognition you would get from, from, from work, I'm not being very diplomatic here. It's not like putting out a book per year. So wait, after the initial credit you get for being editor of Cinema Journal, there is a, it, it does get a bit thankless mm -hmm. because you're doing the same year upon year. And you know, for a while everyone thinks you know, you're, doing, you're doing great, but then you're just doing the same for four more years. Yeah. I would venture, I doubt that the SCMS is gonna take this on board, um, but I think a three year tenure would actually be better. Hmm. Three years is the length of a degree, you know? Yeah. In the time I've taken, I, I could have got, you know, an MA, maybe squeezed in a PhD as well. <laughs> That's a long time. Yeah. And I think you risk burnout on an individual level. Mm -hmm. it, it does get in the way of other projects because there's no way I could have put out an edited book because, like I say, cause I'm doing four of them a year already. Mm -hmm. I, did, I did write a monograph about David Bowie as well, which uh, was quite immersive. So I did manage some other work. Yeah. Uh, but it eats into your time a, a great deal. And also, as I've said, your innovations no longer feel new after five years, was I think three years would enable someone to put their mark on it and then step out while they're still got energy. Right. So it is hard work. There's no, there's, no, there's no way to lie about that. It is hard work. It's hard work for everyone involved. 
Uh, one last thing. I hear that perhaps the name may be changing. So you and I what? and our team. Do we have a scoop here? Breaking news? I just I heard it on the grapevine. Okay. You know, the name may be changing. It's, it's up to the membership. Mm -hmm. I think the membership will, as is proper, be invited to vote on that. Mm. Uh, if that's the case, we will be the last editors of Cinema Journal. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. That's very dramatic sounding. Right. <laughs> it will be a new... Well, it will be the same journal with another name. But right. technically speaking, yeah. we're the last Cinema Journal editorial team. Wow, okay. I'm going to put that in my Twitter bio. If I don't quit Twitter, I'll right. put that in my Twitter bio. Right. <laughs> right. Well, Will, um, I can release you here from your duties, although, again, till December 31st, I guess you're still kind of on the clock, but you are uh, kind of all wrapped up with, with the hard work of Cinema Journal. I'm in so, limbo. Yeah. Well, congratulations, and, and, and also let, let me take this opportunity to say in front of all of our listenership, thank you for inviting me to be online editor, because it's been an incredible experience. This podcast wouldn't exist mm. if not for that having happened, and this has been a really, really fun ride with that, and so thank you, and, um, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to miss, uh, luckily I still get to do the podcast, but I'm going to miss the rest of it. It was really fun being part of that dialogue sphere, so, so farewell, Cinema Journal Dialogue Sphere. You couldn't see that he saluted. This is an audio-only format, so you couldn't see. But we'll, we'll take a picture of you saluting, <laughs> so we'll have that for people to look at. All right, thanks a lot, Will. Thank you. With an exit often comes an entrance, and mm -hmm. we can tease an interview we have in our next episode, and that is with Caitlin Benson-Allett, who is the replacement for Will, the new editor of Cinema Journal. So I'll you'll get to hear editor. from her next month. Yeah, indeed. Before that comes, you should also know, if you haven't heard, Caitlin is inviting people to discuss a possible very big change, a change to the name of Cinema Journal. It would be renamed the Journal of Cinema and Media Studies. So she is inviting your thoughts, questions, and concerns. We'll put a link to this on our website, info at aca-media.org. Oh. No, that's our email address. Oh, bzz. thank you for playing. No, it's just aca-media.org is our website. That's it. So we'll put a link to it on our website, or you can go to the Cinema Journal Facebook page, and it's linked to there. Um, so there will be an online ballot in January. She is also hosting a live Facebook chat on January 8th about this, which is probably right around when our next episode will come out. So you'll get to hear her vision for the new Cinema Journal or Journal of Cinema and Media Studies, and then you can have your voice heard via this discussion forum. Very good. So big stuff ahead in the world of Cinema Journal, and I now just get to kick back and watch it happen. We still, of course, will have Cinema, uh, excuse me, we will still have Acamedia, but all of the Online initiatives, that's someone else's job now. That's, in fact, Julia Himberg's job now. So that's I will good. just She'll do back. a great job. You can hand it off. She will. Yep, I'm very excited. Uh, I'm, you know, I'm proud of what we started, and I can't wait to see what they're able to build on top of it now. So we have, a, we have a, a, an extraordinarily tough topic uh, to broach this week, right? We do? Yeah. I mean, that's the hardest thing ever to write about, humor. Oh, yes. Uh, oh, yeah. yeah. Don't you think? I mean, my God, I am so terrified of trying to say something smart about comedy. So what Michael is referring to there, what we have special in this episode is an interview conducted by one of our producers, Stephanie Brown, and she sits down with Maggie Hennefeld, who is co-chair of the Comedy and Humor Studies SIG. It's pretty great. She opens up by kind of setting up a sort of typology of ways to think about humor and then works through some great examples, including exploding maids. Oh, yeah. exploding maids. Check it out. Here it is. Only here on Acamedia. Today I'm talking to Dr. Maggie Hennefeld, a professor of cultural studies and comparative literature at the University of Minnesota and one of the current faculty members of the SCMS Comedy and Humor Studies SIG Steering Committee. Her work on silent film comedians and on humor more generally has been published in Camera Obscura, Differences, Film History, Flow, and Ms. Magazine. Her essay, Destructive Metamorphosis, The Comedy of Female Catastrophe and Feminist Film Historiography, won the Jack Rosenbaum Prize for American Humor in 2014. And she also has a book based on her dissertation coming out this spring, which I'll ask her to elaborate more on later. So thanks for talking to me, Maggie. Hi, Stephanie. Thanks so much for having me. I'm honored to be here. So let's start with a big question. Uh, for those who aren't familiar maybe with the subfield generally, what do you see as the major focuses 
tensions and sort of questions of comedy and humor studies, uh, especially within media and cinema studies? Uh, Yeah, well, I think it's a really interesting moment to be talking about comedy right now. Um, First of all, just a kind of brief overview of the subfield. So comedy and humor scholarship is centrally focused on the question of why we laugh and what are the effects of our laughter. There are kind of three foundational theories of why people need laughter. What, what do we get out of laughing? And they're called, uh, first, the superiority theory, which posits that we laugh out of a kind of warlike aggression to assert our superiority over another person. And this superiority theory goes back to, you know, Plato and Aristotle and, and Hobbes. Um, and, you know, you, you obviously don't have to look very far afield in our current political climate to, to find examples of this type of laughter. Uh, so second, the relief theory, which emphasizes the importance of laughter as a way of you know, blowing off steam, right? It's a form of relief, maybe just a kind of escapism at the end of the day. Um, and third, the incongruity theory, which argues that the reason why we laugh essentially is in response to the contradiction between expectation and actuality. Um, we laugh when we're surprised, when, when things seem out of place, or even when, when our imagination feels capable of, of transforming reality itself. The incongruity theory, I think, is really at the heart of comedy and humor studies uh, right now. This idea of, of laughter as a reaction to the conflict between uh, reality and expectation. Uh, in the field now, you know, it obviously spans a, a really wide variety of different media objects, you know, film, television, stand-up, uh, social media, cartoons, uh, different kinds of humorous devices. Um, a satire is getting a lot of play right now, irony around questions of postmodernism and, and post-truth. I'm really interested in slapstick, farce, caricature, and so forth. Yeah, I, I mean, if the superiority theory views laughter as a repressive tactic and, you know, the relief theory views laughter as just kind of a form of escapism, the incongruity theory is really about the capacity of laughter to affect social change. And that's a key debate that's, that's core to comedy and humor studies as a field. What are the effects of our laughter? Is it a repressive tool? Like Henri Bergson in his short book on laughter, Bergson discusses laughter as just a social corrective. Freud talks about gallows humor as kind of a safety valve, sort of in the vein of the relief theory. Um, But Bakhtin, and Bakhtin has obviously, well, inspired a lot of feminist scholarship on the carnivalesque and the unruly woman and the woman on top in comedy and humor studies, Bakhtin talks about laughter as a kind of ideological weapon, a way of potentially um, transforming the social and and affecting progressive change. Potentially, there are debates about how to read the carnivalesque, but but that's that's one way in which people have done so. I, I think in general, comedy scholars tend to be more optimistic about this question about uh, the political potentials or social consequences of laughter. Uh, Just to give a brief plug, there's a great new feminist collection that just came out. It's called Hysterical Women. It's co-edited by uh, Linda Mijajewski and Victoria Sturdevant, you know, about uh, various female performers, both contemporary women like, like Wanda Sykes, Margaret Cho, Ellen DeGeneres, Tina Fey. And, and as well as some old favorites from back in the day, like, like Moms Mabley, uh, Faye Tincher, Mabel Norman, Lily Tomlin, and so forth. And, you know, it's about female performers who can inspire feminist activism and social resistance through their comedy. So, yeah, I think a lot of our scholarship tends to be focused on individual comedians or texts that we particularly enjoy, but then use as a springboard for having these kinds of broader debates. We used to think of comedy as opposed to tragedy, right? Comedy equals tragedy plus time or some form of distance. But now comedy pretty much sprawls out everywhere. Tragedy becomes funny almost instantaneously. And there's this sense that we're kind of living in an era of permanent carnival. And personally, I can officially no longer tell the difference between an Onion article and a New York Times piece. 
Uh, and we call everything fake news anyway, you know, which used to mean the Daily Show, not the Daily Caller. So yeah, basically all our questions in media studies now inevitably implicate comedy. So whatever subfield you think you're in, uh, you might secretly be one of us. <laughs> I just want to start chanting, one of us, one of us. Uh, yeah, but I found that many areas of media studies touch on humor and comedy, even if it's not the, like, the focus. Uh, but is there any recent work you'd recommend in particular to those looking to jump more specifically into humor and comedy research? Um, there's been so much amazing work recently on satire and irony. I'm thinking of Amber Day's work, Satire and Descent. Um, and there's that great collection on satire and TV that a lot of our, our colleagues have essays in. Um, Bambi Haggins' work on The Chappelle Show and, and Laughing Mad. I love teaching that essay, that chapter. Uh, the undergraduates love it. It teaches really well. And there's been a lot of active debate about uh, not just satire, but about uh, free speech versus political correctness in stand-up comedy, which has a very kind of pointed cultural reference at this particular moment. <laughs> I recommend everyone read uh, Rebecca Crafting's book on charged humor. Um, it's called uh, All Joking Aside. And there was recently a really interesting issue of critical inquiry on comedy that Lauren Berlant and Sean Nye co-edited. Oh yeah, speaking of which, I'd also recommend the recent excellent issue of Feminist Media Histories on Women in Comedy that you co-edited with Kristen uh, Wagner. Uh, and speaking of which, if I can awkwardly transition, uh, can you talk a little more specifically about your own work? Uh, like who are the key performers and the key texts on which you focus? Ah, uh, yes. It's always hardest to talk about our own work, isn't it? Um, I guess my research focuses in general on the gender politics of comedy and on archival histories of early cinema. So my book, uh, which is coming out in March, is about slapstick comedians in silent cinema and feminist approaches to theorizing comedy. I think I'm personally attracted to instances of comedy where I myself feel, feel unsure about whether I should actually be laughing. You know, whether, whether the thing I'm laughing at is, is even meant to be funny. So in my book, I write about a genre of early 1900 slapstick comedies in which uh, housemaids spontaneously combust out of the chimney and just explode out of the chimney onto the public sphere, or they dismember their own limbs or decapitate their heads to finish their housework on time. My friend Laura Horak and I recently curated some of these films at a silent film festival in Italy in a program on nasty women of silent cinema. And I've also written about histories of women who allegedly died from laughing too hard in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, right? About, about the history of women's deaths from laughter and um, clinical studies of female hysteria. So thinking about laughter as a specific but under-researched symptom of hysteria. Oh yeah, didn't you write an article for like the LA Progressive contextualizing uh, like the recent arrest of a woman for laughing during Jeff Sessions' confirmation hearing within that sort of um, history of women's laughter and death? Yes, oh my God, we have to talk about it. So yeah, I have I have a, an article in, in uh, the journal Differences that's sort of like an article version of the Death from Laughter project. But then there's this piece in the LA Progressive and another one in Ms. Magazine about this woman, Desiree Farouz, who's who's facing jail time still, up to a year in prison and like $2,000 in fines because she laughed out loud during Jeff Sessions' attorney general confirmation hearings. And I'll just give a little bit of background about the story. She was a code pink protester, a woman in her early 60s named Desiree Farouz, and a Republican senator, Richard Shelby, was uh, giving testimony at Sessions' uh, AG confirmation hearings, and he said something just like, you know, Sessions treats all Americans fairly under the law. So <laughs> Farouz laughed out loud and was forcibly removed from the building for her laughter and indicted on two counts. And then the last judge who heard the case in, in March said, you know, you can't indict a woman on the basis of her laughter. He discarded the case. It's kind of unavoidable, even if you work on like late 19th century comedy or whatever to respond to the contemporary right now. You know, there's so much like the world. It feels like the world is ending all the time. It really does. I mean, it's just like one 
political crisis or humanitarian catastrophe after another, and they all implicate comedy. I mean, I find myself reading um, or looking back at theory, like sort of mid-century post-war theories of absurdism more and more, um, like like Samuel Beckett and Eugene Ionesco. It's the fundamental premise of absurdism. Um, something like you know things cannot possibly go on as they are, and and yet they will do so. Uh, somehow they'll inch forward. Like we're all trapped in a room, and we have no idea. Uh, how we got here and and what we need to do to get out. On that helpful note, (laughs) uh, we'll switch gears slightly. So we are both on the steering committee for Common and Humor Studies SIG. Do you want to talk a little about what we're up to and uh, plug some of our upcoming activities? I'm excited about so many things regarding the SIG. So Phil Skopansky started the SIG back in 2013, and it really took off right away. Um... Our annual meetings at SCMS are always very energizing. Uh, we have a brand new website. Thanks be to you, Stephanie Brown, for designing and moderating oh, yes, it. Yes, thank you. Uh, and I will link to the website in the show notes. It's excellent. You can find links to journal articles, bibliographies and syllabi, um, announcements about upcoming humor events, new uh, hot new books and volumes in the field, and CFPs for conferences and edited volumes. Uh, we do also have a blog on the website that we're encouraging really everyone to contribute to. Uh, I think right now we've just posted a few batches of links to critical think pieces on various sorts of issues or debates and in comedy, um, but we're really, you know, open to anyone who's who's interested. Um, uh, just you know, send us a pitch uh, if you'd like to contribute. Uh, this year, we're also sponsoring our first graduate student essay award. So, uh, if you're a grad student listener, or uh, if you have some talented grad students interested in comedy and humor yourself, please uh, send them a link to the website. I believe the deadline's in early January. Yes. Uh, it's January 25th, and the call is under the CFPs on the website, and it's also pinned to the top of our Facebook page. And yeah, of course, we'll also have our annual SIG meeting in Toronto this year, where we'll discuss many issues related to actually a lot of the things we've been talking about in this podcast, Stephanie, uh, like new research methodologies in the field, uh, ped- pedagogical tools for teaching comedy in the classroom as well as we've had a lot of discussion about how best to position ourselves as scholars to respond to the contemporary moment, Um, uh, both because, you know, given the temporality of academia and how long it can take for our work to see the light of day and how many think pieces there are dealing with our sorts of questions about comedy right now, how can we use our scholarly tools to intervene in some of these ongoing contemporary debates? And I think the SIG has been amazingly productive in the last few years. Uh, we've had great discussions at our meetings. We've had uh, field trips that starting last year in Chicago, we went as a group to Improv Olympics in Chicago, which was so fun. And we went and you you performed, didn't you perform? <laughs> yes. Uh, Annie Burke, uh, another SIG committee member and I agreed that we would both go on stage if the other one did for like the part of the all women's improv show when they invite women identified members of the audience to come do a scene with them the crowd yes and you are so funny this year we have plans in Toronto to go to a downtown comedy club maybe yuck yucks um the preliminary program hasn't been posted yet, but just from the sorts of titles of papers and panels and workshops that people have been sharing, it it seems like it's going to be a really, another really strong year for comedy and humor at at the conference. I mean, some standouts from past years, the comedy pedagogy workshop, I know you participated in an iteration of that a couple of years ago, and there was another one that Bill Costanzo put together last year that, that those are always really great. I mean, just I think we, we all use sort of humor as a pedagogical strategy in the classroom and are maybe increasingly teaching directly to, to topics or issues of comedy and humor. So brainstorming about pedagogical strategies for teaching humor directly and also just teaching humorously is always just so productive. What else? What are you excited about via the SIG? Um, I really liked building the website and getting the Twitter handle going again. I'm really hoping to live tweet or at least recruit some live tweeters to cover panels and workshops at the conference this year. 
Uh, and I'm excited to potentially get our blog up and running other than just my few posts that I've done so far. I like how you're curating these sort of themed links to humor in the news or just sort of like like short think pieces about comedy issues sort of responding to, you know, like yeah, recent yeah. events. I'm always looking for think pieces last minute uh, to ground theory for my students uh, and whatever recent events have to do with what we're talking about. Uh, so I'm hoping to sort of build a little repository of roundups of accessible writing around different themes or issues. Because um, I think that would help other people as well. Uh, so the last thing I wanted to ask you about is your forthcoming book. Um, give you a chance to plug it. When can we all expect it? And what can we look forward to reading in it? Yes. Oh, thank you, Stephanie. So my book is called Specters of Slapstick and Silent Film Comedians. It, it started as a dissertation, and, and now, you know, it is a book. It's forthcoming in March from Columbia University Press, uh, just in time for the SCMS conference in Toronto. And it's a part of the uh, publisher's film and culture series. I guess I've talked about it a little bit already. I'll just, can, is it okay? Can I give my, my kind of elevator pitch? Oh, yeah, totally. Go for it. So Specters of Slapstick and Silent Film Comedians reveals the gender politics of comedy and the comedic potentials of feminism through close consideration of early slapstick films. I draw an extensive archival research about forgotten slapstick comedian films in order to rewrite early film historiography through images of female bodily mutation. These figures include vanishing ladies, female dancers who metamorphose into spiders, miniaturized nicotine fairies, and spontaneously combusting and self-dismembering housemaids. I argue that slapstick, as the exaggerated performance of make-believe violence, provided a gateway into the untapped and previously unimaginable possibilities of female identity in modern society. At the same time, women's flexible corporeality offered filmmakers blank slates for experimenting with the visuals and social potentials of cinema. So um, the book has three sections. The first section is on early film combustion, right? These exploding housemade films and the like from uh, the late 1890s and early 1900s. The midsection is on transitional film metamorphosis. Uh, so tropes of female metamorphosis from 1907 uh, to 1915 as spaces for allowing filmmakers to innovate kind of ongoing industry and aesthetic uh, transitions in uh, film aesthetics and film language. And the final section is on feminist slapstick politics. So I talk about hundreds of silent film comedies about uh, suffragettes and, and radical militant wings of the early feminist movement as well. And yeah, I talk about hundreds of early slapstick comedian films in this book in general. Uh, some of the films are still extant, a lot no longer are, and I've just kind of had to draw on archival materials for research. Um, and the book spans from about 1819 to early 1920. Uh, as a bonus feature, there's also an annotated slapstick comedian filmography in the back of the book where I provide, you know, ad additional information about the film, um, who is the filmmaker, who is the production company, who are the slapstick comedian performers, and if it's still extant, um, what archive has it, where can you see it? And I also have pithy, hopefully humorous uh, synopses of some of the films. I could read a couple of choice selections if there's time. Oh yeah, I would love to hear one. Uh, so one, Mary Jane's Mishap from 1903 is probably the most important example for me. It's the film that I discussed the most extensively in the book. So here's the synopsis. A housemaid spontaneously combusts out of the chimney after pouring too much paraffin wax onto the fire. Her dismembered bodily pieces rain down over the village skyline, and then she returns as a dancing specter to haunt her own gravestone, which has the epitaph... Here lies Mary Jane. Rest in pieces. Um, <laughs> awesome. And just to give a brief uh, shout out to Kristen Anderson Wagner's book, Comic Venus, which is also about slapstick comedians in silent cinema. Um, what, what nicely about uh, the a period of silent cinema just after the time frame that I primarily explore. So we're really 
thinking of our our books as companion volumes. Yes, I can't wait for that one as well. And I'll actually be on a panel with Kristen at SEMS this year talking about comics, technology, and transmediated performance to get in one last plug. Uh, And we'll wrap it up there. Thanks so much for talking with me today, Maggie, and I cannot wait to see you in Toronto. Thank you for inviting me. I'm very honored to be included. It's a really cool podcast. Seriously, exploding maids. It's crazy. I would love to, uh, you know, we'll have to find out maybe if any of those clips are on uh, on YouTube or something like we, that and, and link to that, that on our website. Yeah. yeah, that sounds amazing. So I hosted a symposium here at Notre Dame's London campus about, uh, it was titled National Cultures of Television Comedy. Brett Mills gave the keynote address and he had some really fascinating points and especially a notion of the kind of general idea of comedy being something that does define people, defines cultures, and the notion of comedy is both inclusive and exclusive. So inclusive in that, like, if you get the joke, you are included Mm -hmm. in the club. If you don't get the joke, you are outside of it. And how that then becomes tied to issues of national identity. And he talked about especially the British have this notion of humor is part of Britishness, that that Britain takes kind of great pride in their... um, ability to uh, kind of find humor in situations. And they take their humor very seriously. They do very seriously. And he brought up this point that there is a, um, of course, there's a citizenship test. If you're from outside the country and trying to gain citizenship, you have to take an exam. Mm-hmm. And there is a handbook that you study to make sure you're prepared for what you're going to be tested about to prove you deserve to be a citizen. And so this is the Life in the UK Test Handbook. And he said the most recent revision of this handbook added a section on comedy, oh my God. Uh, including a, a picture of Monty Python. I was going to so, say, is just like John Cleese <laughs> conduct the uh, the exam? Well, he said the implication to this is to be a member of this nation, speaking of Great Britain, you have to understand it's comedy. So if you don't get British humor, you can literally be barred from citizenship. And of course, we're overstating it a little bit. But I think that's a really amazing idea, and especially the notion of that being kind of at the heart of Britishness, understanding British humor and comedy. So I would love to see the exam and know what test question comes up in regard. I bet bet they would, like, recruit you as a citizen because of how much you appreciate British humor. I should look into that, yeah. Yeah. Um, He did raise one downer uh, on this, though, bring up the idea of... There's sort of unexpected consequences, and especially the notion that comedy can then, as you kind of ironically alluded to before, can make seriousness difficult, and that if you're kind of always joking about something, it's a way of evading actually having to confront Mm -hmm. the reality of a difficult situation. Um, And he showed a clip from, again, I'll see if I can find that online, of a a piece from Newsnight, a video piece about how satire in some ways serves the establishment, because, again, it's sort of a way of, of just sort of cathartically kind of blowing off the steam and then everything stays the same. And that really resonated in our current Mm. 2017. As we're reflecting back on the year, we're nearing the end of 2017, reflecting back on the year. We've had a lot of great comedy, (laughs) but Mm -hmm. I, you know, the the outcome of that. And of course, another thing that's been said is that it's very difficult to satirize the era we're in. And it's difficult to satirize Donald Trump, for instance, because of how absurd he is on his own. So I don't know where that leaves us yeah. at the end of 2017 with the state of American comedy. And that's something I guess we'll have to tackle in 2018. Yeah. Dark place. Um, mm-hmm. yeah, maybe that's not a great point to end on. We probably don't want to leave our listeners with okay. that. So anything happy we can, here's a joke. My students, a joke? Asked, my, yeah, my students asked for a joke at the very end of class yesterday. Okay. What do you get when you cross a joke with a rhetorical question? Oh my goodness. I don't know. <laughs> Come on, that's good. That's it. That is incredible. That's the that whole is, deal right there. And that is so academic. That it's is beautiful. Academic. That is a beautiful way to tw- end 2017. And I think, you know, with, with kind of pride and what, again, we've ha- not had quite as many episodes in 2017 as we would have liked, but uh, with that kind of ending, that... That's all you need, I think. All right. Well, all right. Happy Christmas celebration, everyone. Holiday celebration. And as we look to the new year, we wish you all the best and 
I started to say, I can't wait for next year. I don't know. <laughs> next year. Coming back to South Bend. Come on. Yeah. Gonna be good yeah. times here. January in South Bend. Living the dream. Acamedia is produced with the support of ISLA at the University of Notre Dame, as well as by the Department of Communication at Denison University. And we also thank the Society for Cinema and Media Studies for the contributions they make to keeping us afloat. We couldn't do our work without our co-conspirators and co-producers. Bill Kirkpatrick at Denison University, the golden ears of Todd Thompson down at the University of Texas. And also Stephanie Brown at University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign in... Joel Neville Anderson at University of Rochester. Also, particular thanks to Stephanie for conducting the interview in, in this episode. Yes, and thank you to Maggie Hennefeld for sitting with Stephanie to, to give us this great chat. And thank you to Will Brooker for sitting with me for our lovely chat, our uh, exit interview. Farewell, Will. Hope your 2018 is a little bit lighter load now. Well earned. Yes. Stay warm. Keep laughing. Oh, mm. all right. We need like a Steve and Edie Gourmet kind of outro. Todd, can <laughs> you do something with that? Can you do something with that, please? Let's see what you got. <laughs>